It's Halloween, the time of year when the veil between this world and the next is at its thinnest. The night where children dress up as zombies, vampires, ghosts, witches and all other manner of nightmarish creatures then go knocking on their neighbours' doors, threatening trick or treat in the hope of getting some sweets to put in their pumpkin-shaped buckets. Pumpkins are carved with gruesome faces and placed outside the front doors of people's homes. This was originally believed to ward off the evil spirits sent to Rome. On this, the scariest night of the year. The origins of these traditions can be traced back to the ancient Celtic festival known as Samhain, meaning end of summer. This was first written about in the 9th century, but is believed to date back many thousands of years. This was held on November the 1st in contemporary calendars, with celebrations beginning on the evening of the 31st of October. It was believed on that day, the souls of the dead returned to their homes. So people dressed in costumes and lit bonfires to ward off spirits choosing to enter their home. In the 7th century, Pope Boniface IV created All Saints Day, originally celebrated on May the 13th, but a century later, Pope Gregory III moved the holiday to November the 1st, essentially looking to replace the pagan festival of Samhain with an equivalent Christian celebration. The day before the saintly celebration became known as All Hallows' Eve, or Halloween. Halloween is the time of year tailor-made for stories of ghosts and ghouls, and I don't aim to disappoint, as this will be a very special show to celebrate a very special time of the year. Tonight, turn the lights down low and join me as I guide you through a very special Halloween ghost walk through the haunted streets of York. first ever How Haunted Halloween Spooktacular. This is the paranormal podcast where each episode we explore the horrible history and terrifying ghost stories of one of the most haunted places on planet earth. However this time you're in for a real treat, as we don't just look at one location, we look at an entire city considered to be one of the most haunted cities in the world, with a total of 504 recorded hauntings. I'm Rob Kirkup, author, paranormal historian, and ghost hunter from the northeast of England. Allow me to be your guide as we dare to investigate in depth the often dark and troubled history of each location, and of course, the chilling tales of the ghosts that reside within, or in this case, throughout the city. This week we head to a beautifully historic city with Roman origins, a city believed to have hauntings galore, and we'll explore some of the scarier places to be found amongst the snickle ways of the ancient city and ask the question, 
just how haunted is York? Listener discretion is advised. With it being Halloween, this special show will be extra scary and will feature more murder, more horrible happenings and some incredibly gory tales. And of course there will be more spooks, spirits and spectres than even the bravest of listener can handle. At this, the spookiest time of the year, listen on if you dare. Welcome to this special Halloween audio ghost walk of York, and welcome to York, a historic cathedral city in North Yorkshire, England. A city which can stake a serious claim for being the most paranormally active in all of the UK, possibly the world. Indeed, back in 2002, the Ghost Research Foundation International, founded by Jason Carl of Most Haunted fame, declared York as the most haunted city anywhere on earth, with 504 recorded hauntings. That's a lot of ghosts. As you walk the ancient cobble streets and snickleways, it's almost impossible to pass a pub, hotel or historic building which doesn't have a ghost story or legend connected to it. This is largely down to York's extraordinarily rich and troubled history. King George VI is credited as one saying, the history of York is the history of England, and he was not wrong. This city has seen Roman, Saxon, Viking and Norman occupation. In fact, the city of York as we now know it can be largely credited to the Romans when the 5,000 men of the 9th Legion marched north from Lincoln and conquered York in 71 AD. They created a settlement here that they called Eberacum. They stayed here for 300 years and it grew into a city of great importance globally as the river port served as both an administrative capital of this farthest outpost of the Roman Empire and as a military staging area for administering Hadrian's Wall and governing unruly northern areas. The Romans left York in the 4th century with the fall of the Roman Empire, and this left the city at the mercy of the Anglo-Saxons. Under Saxon rule, this city was renamed Efferwich. On the 1st of November 866 AD, the Vikings came to York. The invasion was led by Ivar the Boneless and Halfdan, brothers and the sons of Ragnar Lothbrok, the most famous Viking of the 9th century. The city was captured and it became the capital of the Viking territory in northern England. The name of the city was changed once again, this time to Jorvik. The last Viking ruler of Jorvik, Eric Bloodaxe, was expelled from the city in 954 AD and the settlement and its region returned to full English control. Evidence of Viking occupation exists to this day with many of the street names such as Stonegate, Micklegate, Castlegate and Skeldergate, all being originally named by Vikings over a thousand years ago. The gate part of these street names came from the old Norse word gata, meaning street. The legacy of the Vikings lives on today in the form of much of the tourism throughout York, with an annual Viking festival, Viking themed souvenirs on sale in shops and the Jorvik Viking Centre on Coppergate attracting around 500,000 visitors every year, offering the sights, sounds and smells of what life would have been like on that very spot during Viking times. Another aspect of York popular with tourists is of course the Ghosts of York, with countless ghost walks on offer, and if you're out in York in the early evening, you'll see men and women wearing Victorian dress, leading groups of visitors from one spooky location to the next, 
filling their heads full of terrifying tales. York even has a shop that sells ghosts. York Ghost Merchants on the Shambles, a street we'll visit on our ghost walk, sells unique handmade ghosts and is incredibly popular with tourists looking to take their very own ghost home with them. I own a few of these ghosts myself and you can see them over on the Instagram at HowHauntedPod. The Romans and Vikings will feature in some of the stories that I will tell you of Haunted York, and there are so many locations in York worthy of inclusion in our ghost walk that were spoiled for choice. If you want to find out more about York and its horrible history and horrifying hauntings, you may want to check out my book Ghosts of York, which saw me lead a small team of ghost hunters into ten of York's scariest locations, and this book follows every aspect of our investigation. We had one hell of a time, and one of our team found it so intense that they didn't make it to the end of our adventure in York. If you do buy any of my books and you're in the UK, it would be great if you'd consider going to my website www.how-haunted.com and buying it via the links on my books page. There are affiliate links to Amazon, so I get a few pence for every book bought that way, which I can in turn use to buy some extra books to help me with ideas and research for future episodes of this show. On the subject of my book, hang around to the very end to find out how you could possibly win a copy of my book Ghosts of Edinburgh, and a new competition to win a copy of Ghosts of York will start next episode. So without further ado, it's time to light your jack-o'-lantern and find yourself somewhere suitably dark to listen, as it's time for your guided tour of Haunted York, led by yours truly, to begin. So here we are outside the starting point of our ghost walk, York Guildhall. As we visit each location, you can pop over to the Instagram at HowHauntedPod and see the places as you're hearing about them. Situated on the River Ouse, tucked away behind York Mansion House, which itself is a grand house dating back to 1725 and is the official residence of the Mayor of York. And of course, another building not without its ghost stories and secrets. But our focus here is the Guildhall. Work commenced on the building of the Guildhall in 1445, on the site of an earlier common hall, which dates from at least 1256, as it appeared in a charter of that year. The Guildhall would act as a meeting place for the Guilds of York, specifically the Guild of St Christopher and St George and the Corporation, the cost being divided equally between them. These guilds would ensure and oversee the quality of workmanship of tradesmen in the city, and control trade within York. 
Records from the construction exist to this very day, including accounts which record that the workmen were given a bonus of three pence to celebrate the laying of the foundation stone. The whole site was taken over by the City Corporation in 1549 and the first ever council meeting at the Guildhall was held in May of the same year. Council meetings are still held on the site to this very day in the Victorian Council Chamber that was added in 1891. The building wasn't just used for council meetings, it was used for all manner of official purposes, such as hosting royal visitors including King Richard III who was entertained there in 1483, and Prince Albert, the Prince Consort to Queen Victoria, was a guest of honour at a royal banquet in October 1850. It was also used as a court of justice, the most famous trial being that of Margaret Clitheroe in 1586. Margaret is someone I'm going to tell you all about at a later stop on our ghost walk. In 1647, at the height of the Civil War, the parliamentarians agreed to pay a ransom of £200,000 to the Scots in exchange for handing over Charles I, the then King of England, Scotland and Ireland. This enormous sum of money was counted out right here in this very building. Charles I would be executed within two years of this deal being struck anyway, as in January of 1649 he was beheaded in Whitehall, London for high treason. During the Second World War, a German bombing raid in 1942 landed a direct hit on the Guildhall and all but destroyed the building. Most of the stone shell of the building was gone, but some of the internal rooms survived, and it was around this that the Guildhall was rebuilt, staying true to the original 15th century structure. This rebuilding took 18 years, and the Guildhall was reopened on the 21st of June 1960. It has undergone a programme of restoration in recent years, with work commencing in 2017 and being completed in April of 2022. As you can probably guess, considering this is the first stop on our ghost walk, the Guildhall has a long history of rumoured hauntings. Reports place the ghost of Guy Fawkes in the Guildhall, with people reporting actually seeing the full spectral apparition of a phantom, said to be that of the gunpowder plotter. Guy Fawkes, or Guido Fawkes as he preferred to be known after spending time fighting with the Spanish army, having adopted the Italian version of Guy in order to sound more Catholic, was born in York in 1570. His exact birthplace has been debated, and confusingly, there is a plaque at 32 Stonegate which says that, hereabouts, lived the parents of Guy Fawkes, suggesting that he was born there. Then the Guy Fawkes Inn, at 25 High Petergate, just around the corner, has a sticker in the window designed to look like a blue plaque, which says that Guy Fawkes was born there. Historians largely agree that the most likely location is the Guy Fawkes Inn, which itself is an intriguing building steeped in history and has its own ghosts, including Fawkes. What isn't known, however, is what connection Guy Fawkes has to the Guildhall. There are no historical records which place him at the building at all, but that's not to say he couldn't have been there at some point. Interestingly, these reports began during World War I and didn't last beyond the end of the conflict. The ghost who is set to roam the Guildhall today is a large man-shaped shadowy figure. He has been seen within the Guildhall, accompanied by the distinctive sound of heavy footsteps. These same footsteps have been heard in the oldest parts of the building, and a former mayor and mayoress are believed to have heard these very footsteps in the alleyway leading down to the Guildhall, behind the mansion house, which was their home at the time. Disembodied voices are heard throughout the hall, whispering that can't quite be understood. Staff, who are all alone at the time, hear voices calling their name. For a number of years, some have claimed that ghostly monks have been seen in and around the Guildhall. 
and there was an Augustan friary just to the north of the Guildhall. Beneath the Guildhall runs Common Hall Lane, a medieval lane that runs under the hall of the river. The use of this lane predates the building, as it's been used to transfer goods to and from the river for a thousand years, including the unloading of the stone used to construct York Minster. In January 2015, a Guildhall tour went to Common Hall Lane, which is the last stop on their tour. One of the first people into the dark tunnel took a quick photo down to the far end of the lane, and when she looked at the photo later, she was stunned to see three figures in the light at the far end of the tunnel. You can see this photograph over on the Instagram. I investigated the Guildhall in 2011, and when I spoke to staff who worked at the Guildhall, I was told that everyone who works there fears the cellar, and people who do need to go down there often won't look behind them, as there's a constant fear of being watched. I was also told about a recent incident at the time, which saw cleaners finding children's footprints in some dust. These footprints were found on top of a seven foot tall grandfather clock. And with that, let's move on to our next location. It's time to go to the pub. We are now on Stonegate. The street was built on the Roman road via Pretoria and has been known by the name Stonegate since at least 1118. It is one of the most popular streets in the city with tourists and most of the buildings are listed due to their historical significance. The Punchbowl pub is no exception and is a grade 2 listed building and is known for the spirits beyond those hanging up behind the bar. The building was originally a coffee house in 1675 and was licensed as a pub in 1761. The ground floor of the bar is the haunt of a ghostly fisherman who used to drink here in the 19th century. His real name is lost to time, but he is affectionately known as Frederick. He is fond of playing practical jokes on staff and customers, such as knocking glasses off the bar and off shelves. He has been blamed for doors opening and closing by themselves, and even moving the furniture around in the middle of the night when the bar is empty. The cellar is believed to be home to a former landlord who died in a fire at the public house. Staff can tell when he's around as they get the unsettling feeling that they are being watched, often accompanied by the strong smell of smoke. The uppermost bedroom is said to be the lair of a malevolent spirit who has terrified staff so much that many refuse to go into this room alone. This is attributed to the murder of a young prostitute in that room at the hands of a dissatisfied patron in the 16th century at which point the pub was run as a brothel. People have complained of hearing banging on the walls when that room has been empty, and the room always feels cold, even on the warmest summer's day. The former landlady was in the room alone when she was suddenly grabbed by an invisible pair of hands and dragged across the room by her hair. On a different, but no less sinister occasion, a chef ran from the building, refusing to work at the punch bowl again, after feeling a strong pair of hands around his throat. After hearing that you could probably use a drink, so you'll be pleased to know that the next stop on our ghost walk is only a short walk away, and is another pub.
We're now a little further along Stonegate and we're at another Grade 2 listed building and another pub. This time in the shape of Ye Old Star Inn. The oldest pub in all of York as well as being one of the most popular. As you walk down the street you wouldn't have failed to see the sign for Ye Old Star Inn which runs right across the street overhead and was erected in 1733 by the then landlord Thomas Bullman. This sign directs you on through the narrow snickleway into a courtyard and finally into the pub. The inn dates back to 1644, the year of the Siege of York, and it has the longest continuous licence of any pub in York. Some areas of the building, including the cellar, date back even further, at least back to the 10th century. During the English Civil War it was used as a hospital for wounded royalist soldiers and a mortuary. The pub has changed hands countless times over the centuries, but the one constant has been the pub's many, many ghosts. Unsurprisingly, the most active area is believed to be the cellar, where sounds are heard. The sounds of people crying out in pain, even when the cellar is completely empty. This leads many to speculate that they could only be caused by the spirits of dying soldiers being treated down there during the Civil War almost 400 years ago. Another spectre which seems to be connected to the Civil War is that of a Royalist officer seen walking around the building wearing the uniform of the time. A uniform that wasn't dissimilar to that of a musketeer, which is why they were given the nickname the Cavaliers. He appears as an authoritative figure, who clearly feels as though he has every right to be there. Another ghost set to haunt the pub is that of an elderly lady dressed in black. It is unknown who she is, but she's been seen walking up and down the staircase. Nobody knows why she remains forever at the old inn, but interestingly, it's believed that all reported sightings of her have come from children. The most famous ghosts connected to the Ye Old Star Inn are not actually human. They are two black cats. It's believed, although there is little in the way of historical proof, that when the building was constructed, the remains of the two black cats were placed inside the wall as an ancient tradition across Europe that placing the body of a cat inside the wall of a newly constructed building brings good omens and banishes evil spirits. Specifically, they were placed inside the pillar between the door and the bar. These cats have been seen lazing around within the old pub and there have been apparent reports of customers bringing their dogs in while they have a much needed pint and on several occasions the dogs have growled and snarled at nothing. One dog attacked the ghostly cats only to go right through the phantom felines and knock itself out, colliding with a wall. The next stop is only a few doors down on Stonegate, and is said to be one of the most haunted buildings in all of York. We're now stood outside 35 Stonegate, which is an Oliver Bonus clothes shop. Yes, this is not your typical stop on a ghost walk, and there's nothing frightening or creepy about the autumn clothing and sparkly jewellery on display in the window. However, what you need to understand about this building is the history, and the use of the building prior to it becoming a high street store in 2014. This Grade 2 listed building dates from 1482, 
but the site upon which it stands has over a thousand years of continued habitation. From 1682, this medieval building was a publishing house named the Sign of the Bible, which is why there's a hanging wooden Bible over the main doorway to this day. In September 1835, Princess Victoria, later to become Queen Victoria, visited the shop when she was aged only 16 and declared the business as a princellers by royal appointment. After being a publishing house for over 200 years, the building was sold in 1873 as Robert Sunter, the final heir of the publishing house, had passed away and the building was bought by John Ward Knowles, a prominent stained glass manufacturer and he renovated and redesigned it and it became the Knowles family home for the next 120 years. In 1999, Jonathan Cainer, one of Britain's top astrologers, took over the building and when he was interviewed by the York Post at the time, he said he was aware of only a handful of spirits within the building, but during extensive renovations, which involved digging in the foundations, something happened. Suddenly the building was full of activity. Jonathan said, suddenly we couldn't move for spectral figures, it was like Piccadilly Circus. It's now believed that the building is home to 14 resident entities. Kena and world-famous cutlery bender Yuri Geller opened it as the Psychic Museum in 2003. Television medium Derek Okora carried out a live, televised investigation at the Psychic Museum in January 2006 as part of his Derek Okora Ghost Towns programme for Living TV. And viewers nationwide watched on in horror as in the seance room he was attacked by an angry male spirit who grabbed Derek around the throat and threw him up against one of the panelled walls. After the attack had subsided, Derek was told by his spirit guide Sam that this phantom is a very powerful man aged around 40 and he was angry that people have invaded his space. Sam added that the man had so much hatred for the television team he'd love to rip out their hearts. The figure of a balding monk has been seen in the lantern room and an apparition of an elegant Georgian lady has been seen in the dining room. Doors opening and closing with a company in bangs and creaks were heard by visitors when they were alone in the house. I investigated the building in October 2011 and by this point it had been relaunched as haunted. It had a small occult shop in the front of the building selling books, talismans and pendants, candles and herbs. In the window were four screens that passers-by could watch 24-7. These showed what were happening in the foremost active rooms, named the lantern, seance, mask and dining room. They could be watched online too via the wonders of the internet. The majority of visitors came for the ghost tour of the house, which was a tour you could complete at your own pace as you were guided by signs and there was motion activated narration telling you about the room you'd entered and the ghosts that may be there with you at that very moment. The atmosphere, especially if you were there on a quiet day, when you may be the only person on the tour, was unique even in a city such as York where almost every building seems to have a ghost story. Back in 2011, there was very little written anywhere about the ghosts of 35 Stonegate. I've got dozens of books on the ghosts of York and at that point in time it wasn't mentioned in any of them. It seems amazing that such an active building right in the centre of the city could be so unfairly overlooked and now it's a closed shop and reports of paranormal occurrences have dried up it could easily be forgotten as being one of York's most haunted. On that night 11 years ago I led a team of four 
and we tackled the majestic old building, which had sent much larger groups of much more experienced paranormal investigators fleeing in terror. We had access to all the rooms on the tour, but we were also given access to a room that no previous investigation had ever had access to, the attic. We were all very excited by this prospect. However, my excitement was tinged with a hint of trepidation, as I knew something that the other three didn't know about the attic. Visitors who had not been lucky enough to get into the attic itself had reported hearing the terrifying screams of a woman emanating from within the room. I decided to keep that to myself. The night I had there was incredible, and one of the highlights happened when we were in the seance room, a room which we'd been told by staff, the master of the house lurks in. As we sat around the huge table that dominates the room, all four of us could feel heavy footsteps pacing around the room, walking around behind us. Later in the evening, I led the way as we climbed the staircase back up to the seance room, and John, who was at the back of the four of us, suddenly said, Did anyone else feel like there was five people walking up the stairs there, rather than just four? We all stopped and looked at him, and he said, When Rob turned around there, I caught a glimpse of five shadows in the beam from his torch, rather than just us four. Now we're at the Dean Court Hotel, originally built between 1864 and 1865 as three separate dwellings for Dean Duncombe, the then Dean of York Minster, to house the clergy. At the end of the First World War, the middle building was bought and turned into a hotel. As decades passed by, the hotel's ownership changed regularly, and by the 1960s it had expanded to take all three original buildings and the name was changed to the Dean Court although the exact year in which this name change took place is unknown. In 1978, the adjoining property, a medieval cottage with a mock Georgian front bolted on, was purchased by the Washington family, who had bought the Dean Court in 1969. The cottage had previously been used as a small guest house in the 1930s named Volens. In 1986, the Dean Court and cottage changed hands once again, and the cottage was integrated into the hotel. Between 2004 and 2007, the Dean Court Hotel was completely restyled into the award-winning four-star, 37-roomed contemporary boutique-style hotel which it remains as today. As well as being known for being one of York's top hotels, the Dean Court Hotel has a reputation of being one of York's most active buildings, with one website claiming it to be home to no less than 13 separate ghosts. A phantom Roman soldier has infrequently been seen throughout the hotel, and his association to the building is a puzzling one. The end of the Roman rule in Britain was at the beginning of the 5th century, with the last troops leaving in 407 AD, over 1400 years before the Dean Court was built. It appears he must have a connection to the area as it was in his day, with the hotel being close to the site of Roman army headquarters which lay to the east. He has been seen in most areas of the hotel, with visitors even seeing him walk into their rooms. In 2001, three young ladies sharing a room were getting ready for a night out. They were doing their hair and putting their makeup on. All three, 
then clearly saw in the mirror a man wearing a Roman helmet walk behind them, stop, and then turn to face them. Too scared to even speak, they all turned around but could see nothing. But when they looked back in the mirror, to their horror, they could see him still stood there, standing perfectly still. He was there for a couple of minutes, before seeming to just fade away. The most commonly reported ghost is that of a Victorian maid who was seen in the basement by staff. The maid was in the employ of the Volans Hotel, which is now part of the main building. It is believed that her quarters were in the area, which now makes up the kitchen and part of the McLeod suite. There is daily invisible phenomena, with visitors reporting activities such as waking suddenly and then feeling freezing cold even on the warmest summer's nights. They feel something in the room just isn't right, and they are convinced they can make out dark man-shaped shadows moving around the room. But when they pluck up the courage to turn the lights on, the room is empty, and the temperature quickly returns to normal. Other witnesses have experienced being pushed down into their beds, as if a great weight is pushing down onto their chest, making it difficult to breathe and impossible to move or speak. I investigated at the Dean Court Hotel in March 2011, and spoke with a member of staff at the time, and he told me of some of the experiences that he had been made aware of by members of staff and visitors. Earlier that year, a female member of staff was descending the staircase into the basement, when she heard someone clearly whisper into her ear. She quickly turned to see who was there, but she was all alone. She tentatively continued her descent, but then she heard the distinctive footsteps of someone coming down the stairs behind her. This came as a relief to her as she had been a bit shaken by the whisper a few moments earlier. She reached the bottom of the staircase and turned around to see who was there. But as she turned the footsteps stopped immediately, and to her abject horror, there was nobody there. She was panicking now and her heart was pounding so hard it was about to burst out of her chest. She didn't want to be alone down there for a second longer, but just as she was about to go back up the stairs, she felt hands firmly grab her around the waist. At first she was too frozen with fear to look back, but then she realised it might be one of her colleagues. She slowly turned to see. However, she was still alone. She screamed and ran up the stairs as quickly as she could. Just two weeks before my investigation at the hotel, something happened in room 25, which became a front page story in the local newspapers. Mark Richards, a guest from Manchester, was staying there with his wife when he was awoken at 2.50am and felt invisible hands grab his foot and pull him down the bed. He told reporters that he was pulled with such force that he actually moved down the bed several centimetres. The York Post spoke to a spokesperson for the hotel who concluded by adding, Another paranormal group is visiting the Dean Court in a few weeks to spend an all-night vigil seeking things that go bump in the night. The paranormal group they were talking about was me and my small team, and we had a night we'll never forget. Now let's make the short walk to York's most famous building, the largest Gothic cathedral in Northern Europe. York Minster is one of the world's most magnificent cathedrals. The photos on the Instagram at How Haunted Pod really can't do it justice. It's one of those incredible structures that you really have to see with your own eyes. 
Since 627 AD, the Minster has been at the centre of Christianity in the north of England, and the current building was completed in 1472 after 252 years of craftsmen's work. Men would have worked their entire life constructing this beautiful building, but not living to see the Minister finished and open for the people of York. Despite being a place of God, this imposing, gargoyle-covered Gothic cathedral is one of the scariest places in the city. The Minster's most famous ghost story dates from a glorious summer day in the 1820s, when a group were being shown around the impressive building, and two ladies broke off from the group and ended up walking alone throughout the cathedral. They came across a man wearing a naval uniform who appeared to be waiting for them. As they reached him, he approached one of the ladies and whispered into her ear, There is a future state. She burst into tears and collapsed to the floor. Her friend comforted her, but when she looked around for the man, wondering who he was and what he'd said to upset her so, there was no sign of him, as if he'd vanished into thin air. When the woman regained her composure enough to speak, she told her friend that the man was her brother, who was serving in the navy, and he died that very moment. They'd formed a pack in their younger years, that whichever one of them should die first, would return to let the other one know that they were gone, and that there is an afterlife. He had returned to keep his promise. Her friend assured her that she must be mistaken, but sure enough, news reached her a couple of weeks later, and the date and the time of her brother's death at sea matched the time exactly that she had seen him. A phantom link to the Minster who you can encounter today is that of a young man believed to be the spirit of a man called Dean Gale. Dean died in 1702, aged only 26. He was a deeply religious man and he loved York Minster. He was well known by everybody connected to the cathedral. He was laid to rest in a fine tomb that can still be seen to this day. He loves the building so much that even in death he still attends church. Not long after his passing, a preacher was delivering a sermon when he stopped mid-sentence, completely dumbstruck. He regained his composure and continued. But afterwards he said he'd looked out at the faces of the congregation and had seen Dean Gale sat in the same seat he always picked in the pews. He is still seen here over 300 years later, sitting in the pews during church services. There is a sad tale associated with the Minster, and that is one of a dog being walled up alive when the building was being constructed. No one knows if this really happened, and as a dog lover myself I truly hope it didn't, but the story goes that it was part of a revenge plot, where the poor dog was stolen from its owner by one of the men working on the building, and put somewhere that no one would ever find it. If this story is true, it would explain the disembodied barking and crying heard by passers-by, appearing to come from within the building late at night, when it's all locked up and there's nobody inside. Not a ghost story as such, but definitely a story worth telling, is that of what happened when David Jenkins, who was consecrated in York Minster in 1984 as the Bishop of Durham, would cause outrage in the cathedral when he questioned the truth of the Bible, and in particular whether Jesus could really walk on water, and did the virgin birth really happen. Three nights later, the wrath of God was devastating as a great storm hit York, with lightning striking York Minster, resulting in a devastating blaze that caused a million pounds worth of damage, and it took 114 firefighters to save the Minster from being lost completely. David Jenkins would become known worldwide for this incident, and the Times newspaper filled up with letters about the fire. Blaming the lightning strike firmly on Jenkins, 
for daring to question the word of the Bible. We find ourselves stood outside a small house at 5 College Street, in the shadow of York Minster. This house is more commonly known as the Plague House. The Black Death, originally known as the Great Death, began in China in 1346, and the pandemic landed on the shores of Europe the following year. By 1351, somewhere between 25 and 50 million people were dead. It reached England in the summer of 1348, coming in on boats from the continent, docking at Weymouth and Bristol. It spread across the country, decimating populations village by village, town by town, city by city. The Black Death reached York in May of 1349. The population of York was around 15,000 at the time, and it's estimated that up to 10,000 men, women and children died. To contract the plague was a horrible, painful, inevitable death. The family at 5 College Street during the time of the Black Death was a couple and their young daughter. The mother and father contracted the plague and locked their daughter in her bedroom at the front of the house for fear of her too catching the disease, which was a death sentence. A red cross was painted on the door of their house as a warning to others that the plague had reached this home. The couple were in agony, crying out for help, but their suffering didn't last long and they died right there in this house. The young girl, however, hadn't contracted the plague, but she was left all alone and had no way out of the bedroom and out of the house. She was seen at the small window, screaming, desperate, crying and begging for help, but no one dared enter for fear of catching the plague, so they pretended not to see her. She died all alone of starvation in that very bedroom, and her spirit has not been able to move on. She's been seen at the window of 5 College Street, the small window to the right of the building as we look at it. You can see this over on the Instagram at How Haunted Pod. The first documented sightings of her were in the 1950s, but she's been seen regularly ever since, crying, banging on the window, pleading for help. Some concerned passers-by have even knocked on the door to ask those living there if their daughter is okay, she seems to be in some distress. The response is always the same. We don't have a daughter. <laughs> we now stand outside the gates of the Treasurer's House, another wonderfully historic building dating from 1419, situated just behind York Minster. Its close proximity to the Minster isn't coincidental, as it was built as the home for the Minster's treasurer. This was a very important job as the treasurer was in charge of all of the church's finances in York. Aside from handling the money, the treasurer also had the role of hosting important guests from neighbouring towns to the church. For these reasons, the residence was impressive, so as to give the right impression to these guests. The house was built directly over one of the main Roman roads leading out of Roman York to the north. During major structural changes in the late 19th century, four Roman column bases were uncovered. 
one of which remains today in the cellar. The treasurer's house is also home to York's most famous ghost story. In February 1953, an 18-year-old apprentice plumber called Harry Martindale was working alone in the cellar of the treasurer's house when, just before lunchtime, he heard the sound of a trumpet nearby. Not a particular tune, but just a loud note being played over and over. At first he assumed that the sound must be coming from the road above him, or perhaps there was some kind of march or rally outside York Minster, only a stone's throw away. However, he heard the sound repeatedly, and each time it appeared to be getting closer. Suddenly, a short Roman soldier carrying a trumpet of sorts appeared through the wall. Harry, understandably frightened, stepped back in shock, falling from his stepladder and scrambling into the corner of the room where he watched on in terror as the soldier crossed the room and walked through the wall opposite as to where he'd entered. No sooner had the soldier vanished through the wall than a large horse appeared with a soldier sat astride it. This was followed by about 20 more Roman soldiers. Each marched across the cellar and disappeared through the opposite wall. They didn't appear wispy or see-through, they appeared solid. All had dark complexions and were unkempt, dishevelled and despondent, and they looked at the ground as they marched. They carried short swords, spears and small circular shields, and they were clothed in green tunics with plumed helmets. The most unusual feature was that these soldiers appeared to be marching on their knees. However, there'd recently been a small trench dug into the floor of the cellar as part of an excavation of the old Roman road which runs beneath the building. As the soldiers passed through this trench, Harry could see their feet and that they were walking along the old Roman road. A couple of minutes after the last soldier walked through the cellar and vanished, and the mumbling he could hear throughout had ceased, he grabbed his tools and made his escape from the cellar. The first person he encountered was the curator, who saw the state of Harry and said, By the look of you, I'd say you've seen the Roman soldiers. Harry stayed quiet for over 20 years, until 1974, when, now P.C. Martindale, he told his story, but people, including his workmates and friends, didn't believe him. He spoke to the newspapers about it, describing what they wore, but experts said that what he described didn't match anything we knew about the Romans in York. He was called a liar. As the years passed, and archaeologists continued to uncover Roman remains from across York, uniforms, and in particular the round shields he had described, were found on a dig. They matched exactly the detail that Harry had given. These shields were for auxiliary Roman soldiers. Harry couldn't possibly have known about this Roman uniform before, as nobody knew about it at the time of Harry's encounter with the Romans. This led to the conclusion that the only way Harry could have described this uniform is if he really did see the Roman ghosts of the treasurer's house. Harry sadly passed away in October 2014, but the one question he had asked consistently throughout his life since that astonishing encounter over 60 years earlier was, why me? I wasn't interested in either ghosts or Romans. We now find ourselves in Bedden, a hidden gem tucked away behind Goodrum Gate. Today it is an area of luxury modern housing, alongside Bedden Chapel which was built around 1252 but wasn't consecrated until over 100 years later in 1349, and Bedden Hall, 
The exact date of which it was constructed has lost to time, but it dates from around the mid-14th century. Thirty years ago, Bedden Hall was little more than a ruin, but it has been wonderfully restored for the guilds of York, as well as a wedding venue. Bedden means house of prayer, and the use of that name for this area of York dates back to at least 1270, following the building of the chapel. This might sound delightful, but I'm sure you can already guess, considering this is a ghost walk, that Bedding has a disturbing, dark past, which seems to have forever left its mark on the area. Despite the constant periods of change over the centuries, and the development and restoration which has taken place here in more recent years. By around 1874, many of the buildings that had been built around the Hall and Chapel for the clergy were demolished, and Bedden became a slum tenement. One particularly infamous building was a five-storey house called the Ebor Building. This housed 300 people, with only three toilets between them. In the mid-19th century, a notorious building existed at Bedden called the York Industrial Ragged School. The name of which is incredibly misleading, as it wasn't a school at all, it was a Victorian workhouse. A man named George Pym was the schoolmaster, and he was paid to find orphans that he could bring to the school and put them to work. There was no shortage of orphans in York at the time, and he didn't care one bit about these young children, so he ensured that he didn't overspend when it came to providing them with food and clothing. They would receive the bare essentials. This combined with the squalid conditions they were forced to work in for long, long hours meant the deaths of these poor kiddies, some not even ten years old, was almost a daily occurrence, especially in the colder months. Pym was paid by the local church for each orphan working at the school, so being the greedy, evil man he was, he'd never declare these deaths. He'd bury the small, unmissed, unloved child's remains beneath the floor of the school and simply bring in another orphan to pick up the work, and of course even more money, all for him. After months of this, and partially due to there being no more room to conceal these bodies, he started cramming these dead children into cupboards. Eventually, his greed and cruelty was his own downfall, as the stench of these decaying bodies all around him, combined with paranoia, which some say was due to a guilty conscience, although that does seem unlikely with a man such as George Pym, began to haunt his every waking moment. He could hear noises, noises of the dead children getting their own back on the man who was responsible for their premature demise and the callous disposal of their bodies. He could hear crying, screaming, tapping and scratching coming from beneath the floorboards and from inside the cupboards crammed with these tiny rotten bodies. Pim turned to drink to try and drown out the souls tormenting him day and night. Late one night the scratching and the tapping and the wailing began again, and he went completely mad. He went into the workhouse kitchen and picked up the largest knife he could find. And as his young workforce slept on the cold hard floor of the workhouse, he ran through the building, hacking and slashing at the sleeping children. He killed each and every one. It was a massacre. The next morning he was discovered by authorities, whimpering and screaming in a pile of blood gore and dismembered body parts. He was incoherent and was taken away to the local asylum. He couldn't escape the wailing and the screaming which still tormented him and after four months he hung himself. In the 1960s the slums were cleared to make way for new developments and many many bodies of children were found buried beneath the ground in the area. Ghostly children play in the area of Bedden at night 
and the in-the-know locals know that this is one area of York to avoid after dark. Children singing Ring a Ring of Roses has been heard, and the cries and wails of the children are heard by those living in the homes built in the area, atop the shallow graves where the remains of those unfortunate orphans were discovered. Late one night in the 1990s, a man who'd recently moved to York was walking his dog when he heard the sound of children laughing and playing coming from behind number 27 Goodrum Gate. Curious as to why children would be out at such a late hour, it was almost midnight. He found the snickerway which led to where it seemed the children were playing and he entered the archway towards Bedden when his dog stopped. He gave a gentle tug on the lead but the dog uncharacteristically growled and snarled, refusing to go any further. The owner left his dog and continued alone, expecting he'd only be gone a few seconds. He just wanted to ensure that these children were okay. As soon as he passed through the archway the sound stopped and he was all alone. Thinking maybe they were hiding from him, he searched everywhere but found no one. Later the same year he joined one of York's many ghost walks. He enjoyed it thoroughly and hung back afterwards to thank the guide and explained how it had given him an answer for what happened to him months earlier when he had heard the ghost of Bedden for himself. We are now on our way to another place of religion and to hear a story which should be a stark warning to anybody thinking about becoming a ghost hunter. We're now stood on the street of St Saviour Gate, outside of a building called Dig. It's a hands-on, archaeology-themed visitor attraction, created by the people behind Jorvik Viking Centre. It gives visitors the chance to become trainee diggers and uncover for themselves some artefacts from 2,000 years of York's history. However, it's the building that this business operates in that I'd love to tell you about here. Welcome to St Saviour's Church. The church has stood on this site since the 11th century, although the present building dates from the 15th. It operated as a church for centuries until 1954 when it was declared redundant and it was later picked up by the York Archaeological Trust, who now operate Dig today. A little known story of the church involves the sexton lured into temptation by the jewels and valuable that the dead were laid to rest with. A sexton is an officer of the church responsible for the maintenance of its buildings and the surrounding graveyard. As a result, he would know who'd been buried and what they'd been buried with, and he would have access to the graveyard late at night, without arousing suspicion if seen. One night, this greedy sexton returned to the graveyard the night of a funeral. The wealthy family had their own vault, so he entered the vault and removed the coffin lid. He was delighted as every one of those stiff fingers was wearing a ring with a precious jewel. By the light of his lamp, he went around the grisly task he'd done many times before, cutting the fingers off as the easiest method of removing the rings. As once rigor mortis set in, it made it impossible to slide the rings from the bent fingers. He cut into the first finger, and fresh blood spurted out into his face. The corpse's eyes opened, 
and she screamed. It turned out that she was not dead. She had been in a coma and had been buried alive. This incident awoke in her and she was returned to her family, who were understandably delighted considering the previous day they had attended her funeral. Word of the sexton's acts reached the local police, who removed an enormous collection of jewellery from his home. He lost his job, but with no other living witnesses to provide evidence against him, he never faced trial for his crimes. It appears that in death, the thieving sexton may still be up to his old tricks. As people have seen a man in the graveyard late at night, wearing clothes of a bygone era and a top hat, who appears to be leaning into one of the graves. When spotted, he would run away, never being found. To set the scene of our next ghost story here, we first need to go back to the time of the Vikings in York. The Vikings were brutal, and their rule of York, or Jorvik as they called it, was no exception. The Vikings worshipped their own gods, Despite eventually a huge number of them adopting Christianity and marrying local women, Christians didn't escape the Vikings' cruel ways. On one occasion a Christian was made an example of, and displayed for all to see at the top of St Saviour Gate, where it now meets St Saviour Place, outside of what is now a luxury apartment complex called Bieber House. This Christian had been the subject of a particularly horrific form of execution, that was called the Blood Eagle. The victim's hands and legs were tied to prevent escape or sudden movements. Then the Viking would stab the victim next to his tailbone and up towards the rib cage. Each rib was then meticulously separated from the backbone with an axe. This left the victim's internal organs on full display. The victim is said to have remained alive throughout this entire procedure. What's worse, the Vikings would then literally rub salt into the gaping wound in the form of a saline stimulant. As if this wasn't enough, after having all of the person's ribs cut away and spread out like giant fingers, the torturer would then pull out their lungs through the back of the victim to make it appear as if the victim had a pair of wings spread out across his back. The Christians wanted to seek revenge for this act, and one night they waited just inside St Saviour's Church for their opportunity. It presented itself when a lone Viking walked past, they grabbed him and dragged him inside. It was within these church walls that they carried out their own execution. An execution arguably worse than the Blood Eagle. They called it Dane Skinning. They would take a particularly sharp, short knife and skin the Viking entirely, keeping him alive for as long as possible and removing all of the skin from his body in one sheet. This sheet of human skin would then be nailed to the church door as a warning to other Vikings. From that day forth, a ghost story exists from the church that this Viking, who died in excruciating agony, has not moved on and his vengeful spirit remains within the church to this very day. In the early 1950s, not long before the church would close its doors for good, a young man local to the area who was fascinated by the paranormal wanted to investigate the church having heard the story of the Phantom Viking. He approached the vicar, who had the parish at St Saviour's, to ask if he could carry out a ghost hunt after he locked up one night. The vicar said no, adding that the church does not believe in such things, and that his parishioners wouldn't approve. The man was stubborn, and started attending church services, asking the vicar to reconsider at every opportunity. Eventually the vicar relented, 
saying that he would allow the man to stay overnight, but he would lock him inside when he went home to his vicarage, and let him out the next morning when he returned to church, ready for the day ahead. But he made it clear, by agreeing to this, he never wanted to hear about it again. The man was delighted, and immediately agreed. Shortly afterwards, the man came to the church just before the vicar would close up for the night to carry out his investigation. He brought with him a torch, a camera, and a notepad and pen. The vicar locked him inside the church, and he went home. The following morning, the vicar returned to the church, but upon opening the door, he immediately knew something wasn't right, as the man's camera was just inside the church doorway, smashed to pieces. He entered and walked around his church. Towards the back of the church, he found the man's notepad torn apart, pages scattered all over, but there was no sign of the man. He climbed into the higher reaches of the church, shouting his name, but he still couldn't see him. Eventually, at the highest point of the church, he spotted him sat down. He approached him. My goodness, I wondered where you were, he said, as he approached the man. He was watching him every step of the way, but he didn't speak back. When the vicar neared him, he realised why. The man was dead. The vicar quickly moved to another parish. When the ghost hunter's cause of death was established, he had been frightened to death. With that, let's go back to the pub. The Golden Fleece is one of the oldest coaching inns in York and is mentioned as early as 1503 in the city's archives. It is believed it was named for the fleeces and wools, traded by the merchant adventurers who regularly drank at the inn when taking a break from trading and caring for the sick and the poor at the nearby Merchant Adventurers Hall. After the English Civil War, there was an acute shortage of currency and siege money was produced as an alternative with the Golden Fleece having its very own token with the value of a halfpenny, bearing the name of the then landlord Richard Booth and the date 1668. By 1701, the Golden Fleece was owned by John Peckett, the Lord Mayor of York, and the current function room and one of the bedrooms is named for his wife, Lady Alice Peckett. During the numerous redesigns the building has gone through in the last 500 years, Structurally it is very much the same as it was all those years ago, with the exception of the entrance and the top bar, which were built more recently when the building was expanded out into the street. The building has no foundations and is built atop of stilts, giving the Golden Fleece the quirky sloping floors and staircases that really give the place that unique charm that makes it so popular with the locals. The Golden Fleece is famed for the ghosts that haunt every nook and cranny of the ancient inn with some books and websites claiming that as many as 15 individual spirits are resident here, although the Golden Fleece's website claims that it's much more likely to be between 5 and 7. The most famous of the Golden Fleece's resident spectres is Lady Alice Peckett. She has been seen regularly for almost three centuries wandering the passageways and silently gliding through two of the bedrooms, the Lady Peckett room and the Shambles rooms. No doubt rooms which she knew so well in life. Another well-known phantom is that of a Canadian airman who died in 1945 by falling from the window of the room which is now the Minster Suite. Despite being a fairly recent passing, the details surrounding his death are unclear, with some sources stating that he committed suicide, another saying that he fell accidentally after drinking heavily. 
The name of the ghostly airman varies as well, but he is most commonly known as Jeff Monroe. A number of shaken visitors across the years have reported waking to see a man in a World War II pilot attire stood at the foot of the bed looking directly at them. Others have seen a man fit in the same description at the window looking down onto the streets of York, three stories below. In St Catherine's room there has been infrequent sightings of a lady at the window who appears to be in her mid to late twenties and dresses completely in black. Much more regularly reported are the invisible phenomena, with some guests being overcome by an inexplicable, chilling sensation of being watched, whereas others have woken in the night to feel a great weight pressing down upon them, stopping them from moving as well as preventing them screaming for help. The merchant's bar, which is the back bar, is home to two spectres. One-eyed Jack wears a long red coat and wig, and he carries a flintlock pistol. He paces back and forth as if deeply troubled. Mediums have claimed to make contact with Jack, and it appears he lost his life within the Golden Fleece in the 17th century. However, the manner of his death is unknown. The second phantom is known as the Grumpy Old Man, and witnesses have described seeing an elderly man crouched in a dark alcove, watching people go about their business. The newer top bar, named the Shambles Bar, is said to house a further two spirits. A young boy, aged around seven or eight and dressed in tatty Victorian clothing. It is written that he was the son of the owner of the Golden Fleece, and used to love running out to meet the delivery cart. However, one day his excitement turned to horror, as he was trampled to death by one of the horses that pulled the cart. The other ghost is that of an elderly man, who is dressed in much finer clothes from the Victorian era, and appears to be unconnected to the young boy. The cellar was used to store the bodies of executed criminals until their families came to claim them. Phantom Roman soldiers have been seen in the cellar by terrified members of staff who've dared to go down to the cellar alone. Inexplicable bangs and the sounds of barrels being moved around have been heard here when the cellar has been empty. In addition to these sightings there are countless other ghostly happenings, including doors slamming on their own, bedclothes being pulled off while guests have been sleeping, and cold spots. The Golden Fleece's reputation for not only being York's most haunted public house, but the most haunted in the country, is undoubtedly deserved. I investigated the Golden Fleece back in November of 2011, and I spoke with staff at the pub that night, who told me of first-hand experiences of their time at the Golden Fleece. The top bar, or shambles bar, is a much newer part of the building, and previous ghost hunters found it to be one of the least active parts of the building. However, that's the least active part of an incredibly haunted building, and this is evidenced by one of the most amazing and most corroborated sightings in recent times at the pub. Back in 2002, a group of ghost hunters sat in the top bar. They watched on in disbelief as an elderly gentleman dressed in upper-class Victorian clothes walked through a wall and across the bar. They watched on in horror as the phantom stopped and turned to look straight at them. He then carried on walking and disappeared through another wall. The staff we spoke to also told us that they witnessed things themselves, things being thrown around such as glasses being thrown from the bar or off shelves. Staff in the bottom bar after hours, when the building is as silent as the grave, often hear voices coming across from the function room when it's known to be empty. Footsteps have also been heard running across the room. 
Staff I spoke to when I was there told me themselves that they've heard this. The unmistakable sound of men having a conversation when the room's completely empty and in darkness. Customers and staff members have seen glasses and bottles floating around in the air in the bottom bar before crashing to the ground in an explosion of glass and liquid. There are many, many bizarre cold spots in the bottom bar too. When we got talking about the bedrooms that are available for people to stay in, we were told that the St Catherine's room, which is the smallest of all of the bedrooms, is where guests have reported being awoken in the dead of night by the sound of children crying. There have also been a couple of claims over the years of people hearing the sound of musket fire from within the room. The Minster Room, named for the view of York Minster from the window, is where a little girl is set to haunt the bathroom. She is often seen in the mirror and she is known to throw things around. Also on an investigation not long before ours, someone was hit by the bathroom door which slammed shut inexplicably. We were told the most common occurrence in the shambles bedroom is people being awoken by the sound of furniture being moved around elsewhere in the room. A member of staff called Guy told us, Although I don't believe in ghosts, there was one case recently. It was only three weeks ago which really disturbed me. A couple were staying in this room, and the woman woke up in the middle of the night to see her husband sat bolt upright, wide awake, eyes bulging, and he was staring at the fireplace at the foot of the four-poster bed. She asked him why he was awake and what he was looking at. When he didn't answer, she began to panic, begging him to tell her what was wrong, asking him over and over again. He didn't answer, he just continued to stare, completely transfixed by something. She reached out to touch him, and at that moment he vanished before her eyes, only for her to then see that he was still lying in bed next to her, sound asleep. Street when I want is a must-see for anyone visiting York, and when York regularly appears near the top or at the top of lists of the most beautiful cities in the UK, it's almost always photographs of this street that accompany York's entry. The Shambles, or officially just Shambles, is a narrow cobbled street of mostly timber buildings. The name most likely comes from Fleshshamels, an Anglo-Saxon word meaning the street of butchers, as the Shambles was originally home to butchers with each shop specialising in a different meat. By 1872, there were 26 butchers on the shambles. The street is mentioned in the Doomsday Book from 1086, with two butcher shops being located here at that point in time, which shows just how early it was home to this profession. In certain parts of the shambles, you can stand in the middle and reach out and touch buildings on both sides of the street at once. This is due to the unusual overhanging design of some of the buildings, owing to the medieval layout dating from between 1350 and 1475 and the need to keep the sun from the butcher's meat hanging outside the shops. These medieval overhanging buildings and narrow passageways really do give the impression of being transported back in time. While the street is still home to one butcher, the rest of the street is now filled with all manner of shops, including the York Ghost Merchants, the York Viking Shop and a number of wizard theme shops due to the resemblance that the Shambles has to the fictional Diagon Alley of Harry Potter lore. 
Number 35 on the shambles was once home to Margaret Clitheroe, and the building in which she once lived, and the building next door, 35 and 36, is now a shrine to her. Margaret converted to Roman Catholicism in 1574, and these were dangerous times to be a Catholic. Following the English Reformation, which saw England separate from the Catholic Church, and the creation of the Church of England under the reigns of Henry VIII. Margaret risked her life by harbouring and maintaining Catholic priests, such as her brother-in-law. This was made a capital offence by the Jesuits etc. Act of 1584. This act commanded all Roman Catholic priests to leave the country within 40 days, or they would be punished for high treason, unless, within these 40 days, they swore an oath to obey the Queen. Those who harboured them, and all those who knew of their presence and failed to inform the authorities, would be fined and imprisoned, or if the authorities wished to make an example of them, they could be executed for treason. Margaret hid priests in a chamber adjoining her house, and when suspicions were raised and her house was being watched, she rented another house some distance away, where she kept priests hidden and mass was celebrated throughout the thick of the persecution. Her home became one of the most important hiding places for fugitive priests in the north of England. She sent her older son Henry to France, to the English college, to train for the priesthood. Her husband John was summoned to the authorities to explain why his oldest son had gone abroad, and rising suspicion of the Clitheroes led to her house being searched in March 1586. So thorough was this search that the windows on the outside of her house were counted, and then the windows on the inside were counted, to ensure they matched, and there wasn't a secret room somewhere within the home. Nothing was found, however a local boy, with knowledge of the priest hall, was so afraid that he would be punished, that he told authorities all about Margaret Clitheroe. Margaret was arrested, and called before the York Assizes for the crime of harbouring Catholic priests, and practising Catholicism. She refused a trial, saying that she had committed no crime, and she also knew a trial would result in her three children being made to testify, and inevitably being subject to torture. She was sentenced to the process reserved exclusively for those who refused to plead to the charges placed before them. The punishment for this was death. She was pregnant with her fourth child at the time. After several days of being completely deprived of food, and the only water available to her being that from a muddy puddle, Margaret was taken to the Tollbooth on the Ouse Bridge on the 25th of March 1586 to be executed. The form of execution she faced was pressing. She was stripped naked and pegged, spread-eagled to the ground, her hands and feet tied to wooden stakes. A fist-sized rock was placed beneath her back and the door from her home was placed on top of her. One by one heavy rocks were placed onto the door the pain would have been excruciating, and before long her back was broken from the rock beneath her and the crushing weight on top of her. She was crushed beneath 800 weight of rocks, which is the equivalent of 869 pounds or 406 kilograms. This caused her ribs to break through her skin. It took her 15 minutes to die, and in her final scream she called to the mercy of her Lord Jesus Christ. Her body was left for six hours before the way it was removed, where it was taken to a rubbish heap and dumped and left to rot. However, it's written that her fellow Catholics came and removed her body, taking it to be interred elsewhere in the city. No one knows where, or even if this really happened, but the theory is strengthened by her right hand, 
today being held at Bar Convent on Micklegate Bar as a holy relic. Clitheroe was canonised on the 25th of October 1970 by Pope Paul VI, becoming St Margaret Clitheroe. Visitors to her shrine on the Shambles comment on how peaceful and quiet it is, despite opening out onto one of the busiest streets in all of York. Even though it's actually largely agreed by historians that her shrine is in the wrong place, as the street numbers were completely changed in the 18th century, so it's thought that John and Margaret's home was actually on the opposite side of the street. St Margaret Clitheroe still haunts the shambles to this day, with locals encountering her in the quieter times of the evening. The one thing that everyone who was fortunate enough to witness her remarks upon is that they don't feel scared. They feel at peace as they watch her walk along the shambles just as she will have done in life. A life that was so unjustly taken in such a horrific manner. Another former resident of the shambles was an unknown phantom that was seen walking the street dressed smartly with a bowler hat atop his head before appearing to almost dissolve away. He was seen regularly until the 1940s when he disappeared for good. <coughs> we have now reached the final stop of our ghost walk of York, but what a location and story to end with. Let me tell you all about Clifford's Tower, the site of the bloodiest and most tragic event in the history of all of York. Much of York's layout today comes as a result of the Roman and Viking occupation, but Clifford's Tower, originally known as the King's Tower, was built by the Normans. The original mound of Clifford's Tower, with a structure at the top, was constructed on the order of William the Conqueror in 1068, following his conquest of England two years earlier, and he began a castle-building programme to firmly establish his rule over the country. This timber building stood for just over a century before being burned down on York's darkest day in 1190. Following the Norman conquest, a number of Jews followed the Normans from France to England, specifically from Rouen. The castle building across England required the early Norman kings to borrow money to construct these strategic fortifications, but the Christian faith forbid money lending. It was, however, permitted by Jews. These French-speaking Jews were protected by the crown and in time established communities across England. Towards the end of the 12th century, members of the Jewish community moved north from Lincoln and settled in York. However, by this time there was a growing anti-Semitic sentiment in England, mostly due to public disagreements in theology between Jewish scholars and Christian churchmen. In the mid-12th century, several vicious rumours were started and spread like wildfire, accusing Jews of kidnapping and murdering Christian children. Such slanders, now known as the blood libel, cemented the hostility towards the Jewish communities across the country. By March of 1190, tensions in York had reached fever pitch, and a number of the Jewish community had been murdered by mobs of angry Christians. The leader of the Jewish community was a man called Joseph, and he led the scared community into Clifford's Tower, and the warden stood guard within the tower to ensure they were safe within those walls. One day the warden was called away to fight in the Third Crusade. The alarmed Jews were worried that when he returned he might hand them over to the mob which had now gathered around the tower. So when he returned, they refused to allow him back in. The warden was furious and he called for the sheriff of the county, a man by the name of Richard Malabisi. The sheriff owed the Jewish moneylenders a lot of money. So rather than try and calm the bloodthirsty mob, he lit the fuse and encouraged a siege on Clifford's Tower. 
the mob set fire to the timber castle. The 150 men, women and children inside those burning walls were understandably terrified. They were short of rations and they had no way out of the tower. Surrender wasn't an option, as this would mean the likely rape of the women and children, and almost certainly the torture and death of the men. Large sums of money were offered to the mob, if they would allow the Jews to safely leave Clifford's tower, but this was immediately refused. On Friday the 16th of March, and with their options exhausted, the spiritual leader of the Jews gave the news that nobody within those blazing walls wanted to hear. He said that rather than face inevitable death at the hands of the mob, they should instead lay hands on themselves. Each man then cut the throat of his own wife and each of his own children. Then ten men were chosen to kill all of the other surviving men. Of those ten men, they then drew lots, and one of them was tasked with slitting the throats of the other nine. When the mob, led by Richard Malabisi, eventually breached the tower walls the following day, they found the scene of a bloody massacre, with one lone survivor who was quickly dispatched. They then headed to the cathedral, where the keeper of the records was forced to hand over all records of the deaths owed to the Jews. These were then burned within the sanctuary. The only punishment faced by anyone for this horrific attack was fines of up to £66 imposed on 59 leading families of York, many of whom either knew the ringleaders of the massacre or were involved themselves. Following this terrible event, the tower was rebuilt in wood and height was added to the structure. However, this time it was destroyed by a fierce gale in 1245. Henry III ordered that the tower be rebuilt once again, but this time using stone. It's believed that the earth mound may still contain evidence of the massacre in 1190. As time passed, the tower would fall into disrepair and function as a prison. It even gained its name Clifford's Tower, for holding a rebel leader in chains from the structure called Roger de Clifford. A new Jewish community was quickly established in York and stayed until around 1290, when Edward I expelled all Jews from his kingdom, around 3,000 of them. Jews were only permitted to return to England in 1656. The planting of daffodils, whose six-pointed shape echoes the Star of David, around the Tower Mound provides an annual memorial around the anniversary of the massacre. A plaque commemorating the tragedy was installed at the foot of the tower in 1978 and reads, On the night of Friday the 16th of March 1190, some 150 Jew and Jewesses of York, having sought protection in the royal castle on this site from a mob incited by Richard Malabisi and others, chose to die at each other's hands rather than renounce their faith. Today Clifford's Tower stands as a proud, if somewhat decayed and ruinous monument to York's turbulent and bloody past. And the unimaginable fear and bloodshed it has borne witness to have left their mark as it is as haunted as they come. More than 800 years after the massacre here, blood has been seen running down the castle walls. It's not known why, but this is most commonly reported by young girls. Reddish stains are permanently visible on the walls, and it's been confirmed that this is due to iron oxide in the stone. However, what can't be explained is that the stone used to construct the tower was taken from a quarry near Tadcaster, 10 miles to the southwest of York, and it doesn't contain iron oxide. 
In 2017, English Heritage named Clifford's Tower in a list of their 10 most haunted properties in England. They also said that staff at the tower have claimed to hear the sounds of children knocking from the ceiling of empty rooms, and children are heard running and playing in the courtyard despite nobody being around. In December 2011, a photograph was taken in the chapel by a visitor which caused a stir in local newspapers. You can see this image over on our Instagram. Does this show the restless ghost of someone unable to move on from Clifford's Tower? That's for you to decide. Thank you so much for joining me for our first ever Halloween special. If you want more spooky stories of York, then there is a Halloween Patreon episode available right now, which focuses on an investigation I conducted at Middlethorpe Hall Hotel in York back in October 2011. You can follow How Haunted on Twitter at at HowHauntedPod, or over on Instagram at HowHauntedPod, where you'll see photos galore relating to all of the locations that we've looked at in York. If you want to get in touch, you can do so by visiting the website at www.how-haunted.com or you can email me directly at rob at how-haunted.com. Feedback, location suggestions and your own experiences are all more than welcome. Feel free to ask me any questions you like and I'll answer them all in a dedicated Q&A podcast episode. If you'd like to support the show and get early access to all episodes, you can join the Patreon for less than the price of a pint. You'll also get access to exclusive episodes where you'll join me on an actual paranormal investigation and hear the audio as it happened. If you aren't a fan of Patreon, or perhaps would like to make a one-off donation to the podcast, why not buy me a coffee? All the information on how you can support How Haunted is in the podcast description and over on the website. If you've enjoyed this episode, if enjoy is the right word, then please subscribe and review the podcast on your podcast provider of choice. I have a copy of my book Ghosts of Edinburgh up for grabs. If you'd like to enter, all you need to do is leave How Haunted a podcast review on iTunes, or whatever podcatcher you use. Then drop me an email at rob at how-haunted.com to let me know. The competition will end on Halloween 2022, so only a few days after this episode comes out, so be quick. The winner will be announced on Twitter and on the next podcast episode. Next time I'll be starting a brand new competition, the prize, rather fittingly, is going to be a copy of my book Ghosts of York. Next time out we head back to Edinburgh, the city we visit in the first ever episode of How Haunted. But this time we're heading underground to investigate a series of chambers within the 19 arches of the South Bridge. Originally built as a storage for shops on the streets above, they were soon ignored by the shop owners as they let in water, so instead became an underground city for enterprise and locals, 
who soon opened lawless bars and brothels in the damp, dark underground space. Murder and rape were rife, and Burke and Hare, the infamous serial killers, hunted their victims there in 1827 and 1828. These spaces were abandoned in 1835, and they were lost to time until somebody happened upon them by accident in 1985. Now they're a popular tourist attraction, as they are so very, very haunted, with one terrifying spectre in particular who goes by the name of Mr. Boots, preying on those foolish enough to make their way underground to the place he considers his. I investigated this location almost exactly a decade ago, and it quickly became the most dangerous investigation I've ever led. Find out next week all about the history, hauntings, and just what happened when I investigated the Edinburgh vaults. Thank you so much for accompanying me for our paranormal adventures once again. I hope you have a frightfully good Halloween. Stay safe, and join me next time, when we will once again ask the question, How Haunted?